Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for this day that we get to come and honor you. Lord, I would like to lift up each person's attitude, Lord, that we would come humbly into your presence and kneel before you acknowledging all your glory. Also, Lord, it's just unbelievable the grace you've extended to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We are thankful for all those things that you've given to us that we don't deserve, Lord. I pray that you would bless everyone in the midst of their struggles, Lord, through tough times, through trials, and through tragedies, Lord. I just pray that your blessing would be with us and with this college campus this day. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Scripture passage for this morning is found in the book of Philippians, second chapter, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Here ends the reading of God's word. We'd like to remind you uh, to remain in your places at the conclusion of chapel until someone comes to you and receives your chapel card. I also want to thank Dr. Richard Conzen for being with us this morning and for providing an organ prelude uh, for our chapel service today. Our guest speaker this morning is uh, one who is familiar to many of you. Dr. Beverly Carter has been Associate Professor of Music here at Grove City College since 1992. She's a graduate of Furman University, Eastman School of Music, and has her PhD from Ohio University. She was a Fulbright Scholar and I'm delighted to welcome her to the Harbison Chapel pulpit this morning, Dr. Beverly Carter. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks was arrested on the streets of Montgomery, Alabama. Her crime? Being a black woman who refused to relinquish her bus seat to a white man. 
Between June 3rd and 4th, 1989, hundreds of students were gunned down on the streets of Beijing. Their crime? Standing up to the communist government in Tiananmen Square. In the early 1990s, a male college student was making his way down the halls of his classroom building when a student he barely knew spat in his face. His offense? Being a Christian scientist at Grove City College. When Dr. Kilwetter asked me to speak in chapel this fall, I was numbed by fear. Not because I mind speaking in public, even though surveys show that some people would rather have a root canal or endure some similar ordeal rather than speak in public, college professors don't mind. Public speaking is a big part of what we do for a living. I was fearful, not because I mind speaking in public, but because I knew I would have to give a difficult message. As professors, we hear things. We know which classes students like and which they don't, who's dating whom, and what acts were hottest at the freshman talent show. We also hear, far too often, that someone's religious affiliation was bashed in a class, or that a student's roommate is making fun of or criticizing them for their religious beliefs. I wish I could stand up here today telling funny stories, or promising health and wealth, or discussing something pleasant, such as the need to worship God on a regular basis, or how awesome God is. But I feel compelled to talk about something much more difficult, getting along with those with whom we disagree. Many of us continue to think of America as a Christian nation, but researchers tell us that this is no longer the case. In fact, the recently published study entitled A New Religious America in that study, Harvard professor Diana Eck argues that the United States, once considered one of the world's most Christian nations, has in fact become the world's most religiously diverse country. Some cases in point. The 1990s saw the U.S. Navy commission its first Muslim chaplain and open its first mosque. There are presently more than 300 temples in Los Angeles, home to the greatest variety of Buddhists in the world. And there are more American Muslims than there are American Episcopalians, Jews, or Presbyterians. As Christians, we live in a post-Christian world, a land in which we are, as one author has put it, resident aliens. Growing up in Easley, South Carolina, considered by some the buckle of the Bible Belt, I lived in a very monolithic, very waspy world. In my fifth grade of about 100 students, there was one Catholic and one Jew. The Catholic, John Jansen, had moved down south from Illinois, and the Jew, Ken Fetter, belonged to a family in the clothing store business. Both had to travel about 30 minutes away just to find a house of worship. Everyone else, and I mean everyone else, was Protestant, mostly Baptists, Presbyterians, and Methodists with very similar beliefs and types of worship. Today, I don't recognize my hometown. There are many more flavors of Protestantism, differing greatly in belief and worship style, and the ethnic diversity is remarkable. The Hispanic population has soared, and a trip down the aisles of a local grocery store resembles, more resembles a trip down the halls of the United Nations. My father's neighbors, in addition to the Methodists who've lived beside him for 43 years, include a couple from Korea and Subway Deli owners from Israel. If you haven't been faced with such diversity already, you certainly will. 
Getting along with and sharing our faith with people from such divergent backgrounds will not be easy. Most people at Grove City College profess some sort of Christian belief, but there are still many things that separate us. If we can't get along with those whose beliefs at least somewhat resemble our own, how will we cope with such a diverse world? What are some of the differences we face at Grove City College? Catholic, Protestant, Charismatic, Non-Charismatic, Calvinist, Non-Calvinist, those who went to Christian school or were homeschooled versus those who went to public school. How we spend Sunday. Do we go to church twice? Do we study? Do we shop? Or do we not? As Christian parents, uh, we're confronted by questions such as, do we allow our children to go trick-or-treating? Do we celebrate or do we include in our celebrations Santa and the Easter Bunny along with our Christian holiday celebrations, or do we not? The list is endless, and it's all too easy to look down on those with whom we disagree, seeing them as second-class Christians. All too quickly, it becomes us versus them. I once heard about a church in Georgia that needed a new roof. I know this story is true because I told it last semester in Civ Arts, and a student said he has, in fact, seen this church. Half the church wanted a gray roof, and the other half of the folks wanted a red roof. They never could decide on the color, so they tiled the roof half gray and half red. And I'm told that folks still sit under the half they voted for. What does this say to the community? How is this church known? As the missions-minded church? The church with the great youth program? The church that provides a coat closet or soup kitchen for needy in the community? No, they're known as the church that can't get along. By their fruits, you shall know them. Despite cell phones, stereos, and now even televisions, the car is still a great place for parents and kids to communicate. This summer, our 11-year-old daughter and I were driving over to Mercer, and we started talking about certain churches and Christian groups. Some Christians are like kudzu, she declared. Now, kudzu is a weed that thrives in the South, and Kathleen has always been fascinated to see it on our trips to South Carolina. It is not at all uncommon to see entire fields or forests covered by the large green vines. What do you mean, I asked, Christians like kudzu? Well, she said, kudzu looks great and it thrives, but it sucks the life out of everything it touches, and some Christians are like that. They suck the life out of everything they touch. Kudzu, kudzu Christians. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly, not I've come to suck the very life out of you. My husband has often observed that it's possible to be so right that you're wrong. That bears repeating. It's possible to be so right that you're wrong. We need to remember that. In the passage from Philippians 2 read earlier, we're told that Jesus is to be our example when dealing with others. We should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. We're told in verses 12 and 13 to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This call to work out our salvation has troubled some. They have seen it as a demand to perform or perhaps salvation will be lost. But this is not what Paul is suggesting here. 
The word commonly translated salvation does look at personal salvation in the Christian sense of salvation from sin, but that salvation has several aspects. There's the initial forgiveness, one through faith in Jesus. There's present deliverance from the dominating power of sin in our lives. And there's ultimate salvation, deliverance from even the presence of sin at resurrection. What Paul is saying is that the church is to work out or to express in their lives together the deliverance which Jesus has won for them and is to do this with a proper sense of humility, realizing that God himself is at work within them, present to will and act according to his good purpose. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not arrogance and loathing. Our attitude should be one of kindness, understanding, and compassion. There's no room in the Christian's life for a my way or the highway attitude. The Bible is a light, not a lethal weapon. Bashing people over the head with the Bible didn't work for the Crusaders, and it won't work for us. The Christian faith is an adventure, a journey, a growing process. When we become Christians, we don't receive every answer neat and tidy. There are many things about God and the Christian faith that we will never know or fully understand in this life. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, told that in his youth he took a math class in which all the answers were provided in the back of the book. Although he was admonished by the instructor not to look at the answers, he admitted that he always looked. Getting the answers in this way, it has been observed, will get you through a math class, but it won't make you a mathematician. In the same way, having all the answers in the Christian faith might seemingly get us through this life a little easier, but God doesn't work that way. He wants to make us Christians, and for that, he doesn't provide all the answers neat and tidy. We are to work out our faith. We must never forget that when dealing with others whose beliefs differ from our own. They don't have all the answers, but we don't either. It's important that you understand what I'm not saying. I do not believe that all religions or even many so-called Christian groups are the same. Various religions are not all merely different means to the same end, and it matters supremely what and in whom one believes. I happen to believe that when Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me, he meant it. I am saying, know what you believe. Believe it with every fiber of your being and make use of every opportunity and during college is a perfect time, to clarify what you believe, what others different from you believe, and how to articulate your faith. But work out your faith with fear and trembling, remembering that you don't have all the answers. We should treat others with the utmost humility, praying for grace to have the attitude of Christ. God isn't lucky to have us on his team, and he hasn't called us to be the personal Holy Spirit for others. Reverend Fred Craddock is a retired minister known for his great storytelling. I'd like to share with you a story he tells from early in his ministry that highlights what can happen when we aren't open to people different from ourselves. First little church I served was in the eastern Tennessee hills, not too far from Oak Ridge. When Oak Ridge began to boom with atomic energy, that little bitty town became a booming city just overnight. Every hill and every valley and every shady grove had recreational vehicles and trucks and things like that. People came in from everywhere and pitched tents, lived in wagons, hard hats from everywhere with their families and children paddling around in the mud in those trailer parks. Our church was not far away. 
We had a beautiful little church, white frame building, 112 years old. The church had an organ in the corner, which one of the young fellows had to pump while Ms. Lois played it. Boy, she could play the songs just as slow as anybody. The organ was a little slow. The church had beautifully decorated chimneys, kerosene lamps all around the walls, and every pew in this little church was hewn, hand-hewn from a giant poplar tree. After church one Sunday morning, I asked the leaders to stay. I said to them, now we need to launch a calling campaign and an invitational campaign in all those trailer parks to invite those people to church. Oh, I don't know. I don't think they'd fit in here, one of them said. They're just here temporarily, just construction people. They'll be leaving pretty soon. Well, we ought to invite them, make them feel at home, I said. We argued about it. Time ran out, and we said that we'd vote next Sunday. Next Sunday, we all sat down after the service. I move, said one of them. I move that in order to be a member of this church, you must own property in the county. Someone else said, I second that. It passed. I voted against it, but they reminded me that I was just a kid preacher, and I didn't have a vote. It passed. When we moved back to these parts, I took my wife to see that little church because I had told her that painful, painful story. The roads have changed. The interstate goes through that part of the country, so I had a hard time finding it, but I finally did. I found the state road, the county road, and the little gravel road. Then there back among the pines was that building shining white. It was different. The parking lot was full, motorcycles and trucks and cars parked in there. And out front was a great big sign, barbecue, all you can eat. It's a restaurant, so we went inside. The pews are against a wall. They have electric lights now, and the organ is pushed over into the corner. There are all these aluminum and plastic tables, and people are sitting there eating barbecued pork and chicken and ribs, all kinds of people. Parthians and Medes and Edomites and dwellers of Mesopotamia, all kinds of people. I said to my wife, Nettie, it's a good thing this is not still a church. Otherwise, these people couldn't be in here. With God's help, don't be a kudzu Christian.